Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by $2 Radio, publisher of Damascus, the new novel by Joshua Moore. $2 Radio is one of the best independent presses in the country. Check them out at $2radio.com. In Damascus, it's 2003, and the country is divided evenly for and against the Iraq War. Damascus, a dive bar in San Francisco's Mission District, becomes the unlikely setting for a showdown between the opposing sides. Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, says, quote, Rife with themes of humanity, passion, and determined resilience, this accomplished effort demonstrates Moore's rich, resonant prose, authentically rendered settings, and deft characterization, end quote. And Library Journal, also in a starred review, says, quote, For immediate consumption by fans of gritty reality, an outstanding achievement, end quote. That's Damascus, the new novel by Joshua Moore. It's available from $2 Radio. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy. Thanks very much for being here. The guest today is Joshua Moore, author of Damascus, available now from $2 Radio. $2 Radio, the sponsor of today's program. Josh and I will be talking in just a moment. Before I get there, I want to tell you about my dream. I had a dream last night uh, that I published a novel, and it was reviewed by the New York Times and I saw the woman who reviewed the book, and she had no legs. That's right. Uh, she had no legs, but she was walking around like she did have legs, uh, which is to say that she wasn't an amputee. It wasn't like she had half legs. It was more like her legs were invisible, and I'm pretty sure she was walking directly towards me. 
So I, I don't know who she was, but can only assume that it was uh, Michiko Kakatani or Janet Maslin. And I don't know what either of those women look like. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that the woman in my dream wasn't Asian. But then again, she wasn't not Asian either. I didn't really have a good read on her face. I just kind of saw this faceless, legless woman walking towards me. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm not entirely sure what the content of the review was. But I can only assume that it was troubling. Because, you know, I woke up feeling a little bit unsettled. So there's that. And then... Uh, I do want to talk about Steve Jobs. Uh, you know, it's 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 to the point. It's beyond the point of saturation, and I realize that because I'm I've been subjected to it as well. I've seen a million things on TV about Steve Jobs. I've seen my Facebook wall. I've seen Twitter. I've seen you know uh, Walter Isaacson on every program, television, radio, you name it. The book is number one in the country. It's sold about four hundred thousand copies so far. Uh, not too bad in hardcover. And, you know, I guess what I'm more interested in or what I'm finding myself more and more fascinated with is the coverage of Steve Jobs. I'm more I'm more fascinated with the coverage of Steve Jobs than I am with Steve Jobs himself in some ways. And, uh, you know, this week I read Malcolm Gladwell's piece in The New Yorker. That's right. You know, he wrote a piece, which I just, you know, as a kind of a, a tangential aside, I am uh, interested in the word peace, the way that it's used. I wrote a piece. I said my piece. Uh, you know, when I, actually, when I was a kid, I mean, for, the, for a long time, even maybe into early adulthood, I actually thought when you said, you know, say my piece, that it was actually P-E-A-C-E. Like, I just want to say my piece, man. But in, in reality, it's P-I-E-C-E. I said my piece. So anyway, anyway, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a piece. And, you know, you hear Steve Jobs called a lot of different things. You know, in, the, in a lot of these eulogies and essays and tributes and, uh, you know, responses to his, his death, you hear him called a genius, you hear him called a visionary, you hear him called a perfectionist or a bully. Malcolm Gladwell calls Steve Jobs a tweaker, which I find pretty interesting. Because, you know, to me, when you use the word tweaker and you think about common, you know, contemporary vernacular or whatever, you're describing somebody who's addicted to crystal meth, usually. You're talking about somebody who's extremely high-strung, medicated uh, excessively, taking their television apart and putting it back together again for no good reason, or having sex 11 times on a Saturday, or scrubbing a countertop with steel wool for seven consecutive hours. Steve Jobs, a tweaker, according to Malcolm Gladwell. So here's a quote in the, uh, in the piece from one of uh, Steve Jobs' colleagues, quote, he had the uncanny capacity to know exactly what your weak point is, know what will make you feel small to make you cringe, end quote. So, you know, the, the guy was a complicated guy. We're all complicated. He was particularly complicated. There was a lot of unsavory stuff in this piece. Uh, Steve Jobs got his girlfriend pregnant, denied paternity, uh, he parked in handicapped spaces. He screamed at subordinates. He cried like a small child when he didn't get his way. He sat at a restaurant and sent his food back three times. He arrived at his hotel suite in New York for press interviews and decided at 10 p.m. that the piano needed to be repositioned, the strawberries were inadequate, and the flowers were all wrong. All of this quoted from, uh, from Gladwell. 
Even on his deathbed, Steve Jobs went through 67 nurses before he found three that he liked. 67 nurses. Think about that. Uh, Isaacson writes, quote, At one point, the pulmonologist tried to put a mask over Steve Jobs' face when he was deeply sedated. This was when Steve Jobs was on his deathbed. Uh, quote, Jobs ripped it off and mumbled that he hated the design and refused to wear it. Though barely able to speak, he ordered them to bring five different options for the mask, and he would pick a design he liked. So this is unbelievable. You know, uh, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to even fathom. But the guy, uh, you know, the guy knew what he wanted, I guess. It's, 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 it's hard to figure for me. Part of me thinks this is appalling. This is insane. This guy's an asshole. And then there's that part of me that's like, you know, he's a, I guess he's a genius. He just knows what he wants. He can't turn it off. And, you know, there's fascinating stuff in there about how Steve Jobs, you know, would go after Bill Gates relentlessly. He would go after him for being unimaginative and for repurposing the ideas of others, even though that's what Steve Jobs did to a large extent. He himself did that. And yet he bashed Bill Gates for doing it and sort of like ripped on him for only, uh, you know, be like kind of leaving technology to become a philanthropist. And, you know, it's just, it seems a little small and Gladwell makes a good point that philanthropy on the scale that Gates practices, uh, actually is imagination at its grandest. That seems like a fair statement or at least, uh, an arguably fair statement. Whereas Jobs's vision as brilliant as it was, was narrow. It was extremely focused and extremely specific. He was a tweaker. So I didn't know him, uh, obviously. Uh, I'm sure he was great with his family. There have been a lot of uh, you know warm and wonderful things said about him. I'm not here to dance on the guy's grave. What I'm really driving at is that uh, you know I have this question in my mind that's been brewing, and the question is this. To be great at something, do you have to be this way? And more to the point, to be creatively great, do you have to be this way? Do you have to have this insane perfectionist, controlling OCD tweaker mentality and a delusional belief that what you're doing is special and different in order to be creatively great? I don't know. You know, maybe this was how it had to be for him specifically. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. Uh, you know, so... There was a big outpouring, obviously, as far as public funerals go. You know, my head started going on this, too, when I watched the outpouring of grief, uh, you know, via social media in particular. And I started thinking about public funerals and the way we choose our heroes and how, you know, maybe Jobs' funeral was one of the biggest in history. If you count computers, if you count attendance via social media and web video, you know, and this also assumes that the... Uh, the grief around the world was as big as the American media presented it. You know, I, I know in America it was a huge deal. I know there was some outpouring around the world. I don't know how big it was. I, you know, I'm not really 100% sure. But uh, for sure in America, he was our guy. He was our entrepreneur. He was, uh, as The Onion put it so perfectly, the last guy in America who knew what the fuck he was doing. That's sort of how I always saw him. That's, you know, that made sense to me. He was, you know, for all of his faults, he was an effective human being. He realized his visions. He knew how to do that. He knew how to make stuff that worked, that looked good. So, you know, who else do we turn out for when they die? Who else do we give 
a huge public send-off to. Like a president, you know, Reagan got a pretty good turnout, people lining the streets. I do remember that on TV. Tim Russert, he got a nice turnout. I remember like Bruce Springsteen singing Thunder Road at his memorial. That was an unusually, uh, you know, warm public send-off. But like, what about public intellectuals? Do we have one? What about a writer? What writer would get a big turnout? You know, like John Paul Sartre, or Jean Paul Sartre, however you pronounce his name, in 1980 died, and 50,000 people attended his funeral in Paris. Like, this is a real public intellectual, existentialist, deep thinker. 50,000 people attended his funeral. How would that, you know, who would that happen for in America? Who's our equivalent? You know, who do we have? Christopher Hitchens, Bill Maher, Noam Chomsky, Fareed Zakaria, Paul Krugman. I mean, who is it? Most people in America don't even know who these guys are. So I just, you know, I'm just thinking about why we salute the people we salute and whether we salute them because we're genuinely moved to salute or are we saluting them because lots of people are saluting them or the media is saluting them? How do we choose our cultural heroes? So there's that. And, you know, I will say that ever since Steve Jobs died and I've been reading all this stuff, all these tributes and thinking about him a little bit more, it has affected me. It has affected my work. Uh, it has affected my writing and made me a bit more of a perfectionist. You know, even doing this show, I find that I will re-record something and re-record it until I get it just right. I'm tweaking, I guess. I am a tweaker. You know, like, like I'm a mild tweaker. I am an ascendant, middle-of-the-road, moderate tweaker. And I have just said my piece. So when you're talking about like 20 drafts, like, I mean, are you, how significantly are you rewriting? You know what I'm saying? Like, what does it look like from yeah. draft to draft? I mean, are, are there is like in, entire chunks of the book taken out or moved around? Uh, or rebuilt from scratch sort of once you've, you've kind of figured it out and, and got the puzzle piece that you want to fit in there? Is that how it kind of goes? It's, it's definitely like a, a major overhaul kind of situation. I mean, I'm not like, you know, smoking clothes, cigarettes, and moving commas around. Um, but it would be more like, you know, this chapter sucks. I already said this. Um, I wrote it and I'm bored. Um, I think this was really good, but it might make a better chapter two instead of chapter seven. Uh, I'm a big proponent of like active evidence. Um, so rather than have any sort of like suspicions or hypotheses about what I think is going to work, uh, I want to try it all a bunch of different ways and, and give myself those options. You know, so I never have to like, you know, second guess myself and say, well, maybe it would have played better if I had done X or Y. Um, I'm always going to do X and Y, and then I can make an informed decision about what's serving the story the best. Well, so, okay, so then do you have, like, if, you know, if, if the finished product, let's just say that the, the final draft of the novel is uh, 80,000 words, you know, how many words would you suspect you've written along the way? You know what I'm saying? Like, do you go through? Yeah, yeah. The thing for me, it always is like I, what I normally say is like if, I, if the book's 300 pages, I probably write 1,200 pages. Jesus. Um, and the, I think, you know, writers need a bunch of really kind of um, innately or like eloquently sculpted delusions in order to kind of do what we do. 
And uh, one of the delusions that's really important for me is this idea that the 900 pages that didn't make the book are just as important as the 300 pages that did make the book. <laughs> you know, I think what, what's really interesting about that idea is because what it's really getting at is that as an author, we have to know everything. Like we have to have this huge reservoir of information. And then we're very thoughtfully making determinations about what's actually going to make it in the book. Um, so it's actually the, the, the final revision is a much more of a process of subtraction than addition. Um, but figuring out the stuff that the, just the writer had to know in order to write the book versus the stuff that an end reader has to see that go on this kick-ass ride. Well, yeah, you know, it's funny, and it, it's, it's, it's a good thing to remember, because I remember reading uh, an interview with Philip Roth, who, you know, I forget how many years ago it was, but, like, he was Time Magazine, Time Magazine kind of, like, canonized him or whatever as, like, the great American novelist, and, you know, he's, he's sort of a, he's a, he's a benchmark author, he's one of those authors who's done it, he's done it for a long time, and, uh, you know, he was talking about how he works, and he finishes a book, and then I, I think he was he was saying that then he'll go on to write, you know, he'll start working on his next book, working a regular workday, eight hours a day, probably six days a week, if not seven. And he'll write 500 pages. And then from that 500 pages, there's usually like five or ten that are any good. And that's how he starts his next book. That's how he does it. And he's like, you know, up for the Nobel Prize or whatever. You know? Right. So that's just how it goes. You know, it's like and for, for some reason, I find that it, it's easy to forget that. Especially when you're. Well, I think you know it's it's not a really sexy part of the trade. Like I think that people really like this idea that like you know the genius sits down and you know she or he like you know types out this manuscript and you know sure they probably have to revise a bit but like they're so smart or they're so like aware of the human condition that it kind of just comes out in this really beautiful way. Um, but when in fact it's it's just like the ass in the chair part of what we do, you know, like going back over the material and going back over the material. Um, there's, there's a lot of, I think it's, I think work ethic is much more important than talent when it comes to actually seeing a novel to completion. Uh, I know a lot of really smart people that have like a first or second draft of a book on their C drive that they ended up abandoning. And it's not that they're not really great writers. It's that like they weren't able to continue to have fun or to continue to push themselves to, to finish that book. So how do you do it? Like, what keeps you going? I mean, you know, like, what what is it that gives you the determination to see it through? And, and how do you keep having fun when you're on draft seven of draft 20, you know, out of 20 drafts? Well, I think in the early drafts, what, what keeps me going is the, the, the kind of the wild flights of imagination. Um, I, I have a really bad insomnia, so I tend to do most of my writing between about midnight and, you know, six or seven in the morning. And I don't have any like hard evidence to back this up, but in my experience anyway, that during those times, like I think the gap between my subconscious and my conscious mind is is a little bit closer together, um, and I'm able to like make these like really wanton kind of nutty decisions. Um, so it's really fun to kind of follow those those flights or follow those explorations during the early drafts. Um, and I start to kind of fall in love with the characters and fall in love with the story. Uh, but I also know that it has a lot of problems. So what, where I continue to have fun once I get a handle on who those people are in those scenarios uh, is now I want to make it good. And I think it was in, in Mao too, when Don DeLillo talks about an early draft being like a hideous baby. 
Um, you know, it's like, it's super ugly, but it's like, it's your baby. So like, you want to do everything you can to like make its life better, make it prettier or whatever. Right. So you buy it like a little baby tracksuit and get it some baby tattoos and <laughs> do whatever you can to like, you know, make it grow into whatever it is going to grow into. And I think that, that metaphor really holds up. You fall in love with it, uh, and then it becomes this kind of labor of true affinity, and you want to make it as, as much of a gleaming work of art as it can possibly be. So, I mean, in, in the end, is that, I mean, because I, I find that, like, uh, you know, for most authors working in the literary vein, particularly on the fiction side, uh, you know, what motivates you has to be you know, some sort of love of doing the work, the work itself, a love, you know, if you love books, you want to write books that can, uh, sit on the shelf next to the, the books that you admire. Uh, it certainly can't be, it certainly can't be money as the central driver. Uh, but I feel like, you know, ambition is a part of it. You know, there's gotta be some sort of, you know, drive inside of people. And I'm curious to know, like what you think of that, like, where does that come from in you? Like, do you feel like a sense of grand ambition or is it simply just like, this is how I entertain myself. I like to do this work and it, you know, it helps. Yeah, me. I think that there's, there's probably two sides to that. And, and the first part is that not only can you not do it for money, uh, simply because there isn't any, um, but I also don't think you can do it just to publish. Um, I think there has to be more about like, you know, last Thursday was a better day because I got word on the page. Um, Tuesday was a great afternoon because I wrote a, a kick-ass scene. Uh, but it, I think it has to be about kind of just those really simple pleasures that, that you have with the, the genesis of your art, that you're sitting around and, and you're having a good time. Like, the world seems pretty fucked to me on days that I don't get words down. You know, I kind of walk around squinting at people in some sort of, like, stupor. And then on days when I when I get language down that I'm digging, um, those are the days I'm in my best mood. So why um, is that, so, though? Because like, I'm the same way. I think all, most writers are the same way, especially once you get into a groove with like a, a disciplined practice. And I guess yeah. part of it is just wanting to feel like you're making progress and you're you're moving towards the goal of, of actualizing, you know, these these flights of imagination into art. But, you yeah, know, it's strange. Like, what else is there? Do you know what I'm saying? What else is to be in a bad mood just because you didn't get 500 words down? But it, I mean, I feel like that's very real. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. And it, I mean, maybe that's part of like the esoteric part of our identity. I mean, maybe we're not able to articulate those things about ourselves, except that we know that if we don't incorporate this into our day-to-day -day life, something feels off or something feels weird. Um, so we want to go back to it. And, and, and see what's there. You know, I think, was, I think it was Foster Wallace, too, who said something to the effect of, like, you know, the subtext on every page of every book ever written is, you know, I'm alive. Um, which is just getting to the idea that, like, we're all engaging in this, uh, this act of communication, you know, that sense, you know, people have been scribbling on cave walls. And we want to, like, enter into that dialogue that, that literature presents itself, where people get to read and experience these things, process it for themselves, and then, you know, spit it out in their own way on, on the other side. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, leave it to, to him to, you know, figure out the subtext of every page of every book ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's probably right, too. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, and so, you know, you're a teacher as well, correct? You teach creative writing? 
I teach up in the MFA program at the University of San Francisco. Okay, so how does that, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm curious, like, how you work with your insomnia, your writing, you're up all night, and then you go and teach? Is that the way that it goes? Are you able to just, like, you know, how, when do you sleep? The, yeah, the USF program is, is kind of devised for working adults, so all the classes are in the evenings, which uh, is great for my schedule. Yeah. Uh, but I'm kind of, like, you know, trying to sleep from, you know, like, roughly, you know, six-ish to... Uh, nine-ish, ten-ish, you know, I feel lucky that I don't have the constitution, right, you know, I need eight or nine hours of sleep. It kind of almost lets me write books in, in dog years, you know, because my work day is just a little bit longer yeah. than everybody else's, and I'm really appreciative, and insomnia gets such a bad rap, um, you know, and if I had to go to a day job or, you know, if I had kids, I'm, not, I'm impressed with anybody who gets one word down on a page that, that has children. I have a yeah. I have a, I have a one year old man. It's it's definitely added a dimension. <laughs> oh, I can't even I can't even imagine one years old. You said yeah. Wow. A little bit more, like what, fourteen months now? But uh, you know, it's a good, it's a great dimension. But it's you know, relative to creative work, uh, it, it you know causes you to have to reconfigure and realign priorities and all that stuff. Well, I'm sure it makes you. Um, I would imagine that your creative life goes down a little bit on the hierarchy. I mean, you know, you could play with your imaginary friends on the page or you could play with this, like, beautiful creature you just made. Like, I would rather play with my kid, I would assume. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's exactly right. I mean, she, you know, she obviously comes first. My my family comes first. And, you know, when I was in my 20s and I was living, uh, what I, I don't think I even realized at the time was, like, sort of a monkish existence. Like, it was, I mean... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I, happily, happily so. I was just, I lived this really lean existence in my 20s and didn't go out a ton and just, you know, writing was the center of everything. And sure. the center has been replaced. And that's just, you know, that's life. And plenty of writers have families and they figure it out. And I'm just in the process now, I think, of, of recalibrating and figuring out how to make all the pieces fit. I did a, a reading a while ago with uh, Joe Mino, who at the time, I think you know, his, his daughter was three or four or something, uh, and he said that he was having trouble prioritizing time to write, because every time he sat down to work on something, he would think to himself, like, wow, my daughter's never heard the Rolling Stones. Uh, <laughs> no. or he, would, he would find something that she hasn't yet experienced that was like, really meant a lot to him, and he would immediately want to go share that with her. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's it. Like, first of all, it's like, you know, I've been working, doing other stuff all day, and then now I want to write, and I can hear, like, I'm, I'm in my home, all, I can hear my daughter, you know, like, laughing out in the living room or something, and it's right. just, it just t tugs at you, and then there's a part of me that's, uh, you know, you feel, there, there's an element of selfishness to creative work that that's really at the crux of it for me. Like, not only in terms of time expenditure, but also in terms of, like, breadwinning and stuff, where it's like, there's a part of me that feels sort of like a dick, you know, like, oh, sure. uh, you know, daddy needs to have his art time or whatever. And, you know, I, I think you can, I think ultimately that can be reconciled. And I think some of the things that we talked about earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago about, uh, th there's a nobility in the work that I don't think requires any apologies, but you know, I think that these are just honest thoughts that go through any parent's head, you know, when you're trying to sure. make, make it all happen. But it's probably an example, too, of how, you know, two things can be equally true. Like, I mean, I think there is some nobility in the pursuit, but there's also an inherent amount of hubris in it, you know, where you're like, I must go and make time for, like, my capital A art, 
Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's okay to acknowledge that side of it too. And I think there's, there's some ego involved with that. That's yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, to want to be, to want to have your thoughts, your words, like perfectly bound or, you know, uh, bound in hardcover or whatever. And, and, you know, there's something in that that is undeniably tied to the human ego. Oh, uh, for sure. But I think that any kind of, you know, egoic part of it is sort of equalized or, or even like, uh, you know, overcome by the suffering that you have to go through just to get to that point, you know, like, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, and know. also the, you know, the idea of, like, what the ultimate payoff can be from, like, a humanity standpoint. And, and I think uh, the literature at its best can, like, really teach empathy. Right. You know, the fact that, like, you can occupy a mindset or a worldview that is not yours and may completely belie, like, your own moral coding. Um, thing that I can make you maybe think or process things in, in an entirely new way. We may have proven too stupid for that to be the case so far, but I mean, I kind of am still holding out that that, that may someday be the case. Well, books, can, books can help with that. Well, no, and I think they can, and I think, you know, it starts to sound corny, but it's like, you know, maybe the, maybe it doesn't happen on some sort of global scale, but, you know, if, if somebody reads one of your novels and it opens them up one person and it opens them up or it provides some sort of uh, legitimate comfort. You, you know, it's that whole thing. Yeah. If it helps one person. Well, I think one of the, one of the things I hear from people a lot of reading and whatnot is like, you know, I, I really dislike these characters. Um, but you made me cheer for them. How, how did you do that? And like, I don't even know that they're intending it to be a compliment, but I, I certainly take it that way. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I think that's one of the really interesting things we can do is we, we can put our characters under some sort of mental or emotional duress, and hopefully if we've done our job right, the, the reader takes on that, that same emergency, and they kind of go on the, the journey right along with, with the people on the page. Are, are, you, a, are you a Selby fan? Uh, I've not read a ton of his catalog, but I mean, I loved Last Night to Brooklyn. Okay, I was just, I was just wondering because it's, it's similar terrain, you know. And I, I studied with him in grad school or whatever, but it just same kind of thing where you know these people that he's writing about, um, you know, sort of exist on the periphery or in play, you know, in or they exist yeah. in ways that aren't necessarily uh, seemly, and yet you find yourself rooting for them and connected to them in like powerful ways. What kind of teacher was Selby? He was great, and you know, I think at the time that I studied with him, he was at the end of his life, and uh, you know, he would come in to the classroom with an oxygen tank because he had had. Oh, wow. I want to say he'd had tuberculosis back in his you know early adulthood and wasn't even expected to live, and you know, he wound up living into his seventies, and he only had like part of one lung, and um, you know, he was just in in poor health. But he came to class; his mind was still razor sharp. He got every joke. And I always say, like, he talked like a, a Muppet with a Brooklyn accent, kind of. You know, he had, this, <laughs> he had this voice, you know, that was very distinct and a very distinct, laugh, very distinct laugh. And there was a, uh, you know, and it wasn't always this way. Because, you know, I talked to people who obviously knew him in his younger years, and, and he himself would admit it. But, you know, when I knew him, he was at, at the end of his run, and he was still sharp. He still had a sense of humor, even though he was dealing with, like, significant health problems. And he was a writer who had made it through the fire without going nuts. You know, he had, right. he had like a serenity and like a, you know, kind of a palpable wisdom about him. And that to me was instructive. Like I've always been drawn, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of like fall in love with the romance of like the young writer who's tortured and like kind of flames out 
or the writer who, you know, at age 50 or 60, you know, finally just like burns out and like blows his head off or whatever it is. Um, but I, you know, I find myself more, uh, or I find myself telling myself like, you know, better to focus on like the older writers who like still have a sense of humor and some humility and who make it to the end of the run with some degree of peace. You know what I'm saying? Like, absolutely. You know, absolutely. and so he was a great teacher in that way, you know, to see somebody who'd kind of done that because there's, there are too many examples in this profession of, uh, writers who go the other route. And I think there are a lot of young writers who, um, you know, fall into the sway of that or romanticize it. And, you know, definitely. Well, the other cool thing about meeting somebody like that is you can hopefully like try to superimpose those notions of like grace and humility, like back into your own kind of writer's identity. I mean, cause I think like we should take our job seriously and try to do our job the best that we can. Um, but at the end of the day, like, you know, we're not curing cancer. No. <laughs> um, you know, so I think it's important to say, like, I want to do this really well, but, like, it's art. You know, and keep it where it belongs. Like, don't, you don't need to, like, wear your monocle and elbow patches like some asshole. Like, <laughs> write good books, but, like, be, be a normal cat. Be, be real. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, to get back to the whole academia thing, uh, because I'm curious about this, like, you do the teaching. Uh, at San Francisco, and uh, how does that affect your writing? Like, do you find that there's a nice like symbiosis happening there? Do you find that like teaching informs uh, how you write, or that uh, you know, or is it just kind of like a great way to earn a living and have time to write since the the schedule is flexible? The, you know, I, you hear people, or I hear people, anyways, that, that complain a lot about like the student as parasite, like kind of like sucking all of your time or sucking all of your resources or whatever it might be. Uh, but that, is, that hasn't been my case, uh, at least not yet in the classroom at all. And in fact, the nights that I teach are usually the nights when I know for sure I'm going to come home, you know, brew some coffee, turn on some rock and roll, and I'm going to go for it because I love being a part of, of the community. Like, I, you know, to touch on that idea again about how lonely it can be to be a writer, I think it's so important that we have a support network of just other people, that being around other people that love words. Right. You know, and so often in our society, you know, people want to talk about Project Runway or, or whatever the you know, show du jour might be, and, and there's nothing wrong with those empty calories. Okay. But it's also nice to balance those out with, with some quality. And being around you know, graduate students who are like really seriously working on their first book, like I find that to be incredibly inspiring. Well, and they're also, you know, they're also not bitter yet. You know, like a lot of writers, it's easy to get bitter or be fatigued or, you know, it, everybody goes through those cycles. But I find, you know, because you know, I've taught as well, like there's something sort of uh, energizing about being around people who are just fully enthusiastic and full of hope and they believe, yeah, you know, and it makes you kind of confront your own motives, you know, like when I find myself being like super self entitled or like whining about book sales or, you know, whatever I'm lamenting that particular afternoon, like I, we go into this little incubator where it's all about the art for the art's sake. And we're not talking much about commerce or that weird collision between your creative life and, and capitalism. Right. And and I love that space. I think it's I think it's really vital. Well, you know, to jump back uh, or just to to kind of continue that thought with with respect to art and commerce and then to jump back a little bit to the whole empty calories thing. 
like something sparked in my head when you were talking about Project Runway because I did have an idea recently. Uh, you know, and, and I'm probably the only one who thinks it's an, even like a halfway good idea. But it occurred to me that, you know, because there's, you know, this huge popularity uh, for reality TV. I mean, it, there's no doubt about it when you look at the numbers. Like people love to, con- you know, to watch that stuff. They love to consume it. And so I, I had this idea. I had two ideas, actually, and I want to pitch them to you and get your thoughts. Like one of the ideas was uh, to take the reality, sh- you know, both ideas are to take the reality show format and to channel it into... Uh, you know, literary into the literary world to try to like you know take it and make use of it in the service of book culture, and so one one of my ideas was to do a reality show called MFA, where you just go into an MFA classroom with cameras because you know those workshops can be very interesting and you have these personalities and you have these ambitions and you have people criticizing each other's work, and if you had a good enough class and a good enough group. Even if it was like a web series of videos, like I think it would be sort of hilarious to to see that play out for people who are in the literary world. And then the second, oh, I think it would be great. So that one, that's one idea. And then the other one was a kind of even campier uh, idea where I was thinking, like you know, so many people say they don't like to read. You know, you, you hear that, and uh, and then I'm watching, you know, just kind of the salacious nature of reality television programming and how it can suck you in. And so I had this sort of like, uh, you know, high art, low art, kind of campy idea where I was going to create a reality show called Reading is a Drag. And it was going to be a book club consisting of drag queens exclusively. And then you're going to have like an author like Jonathan Franzen come in and like sit down with the group after they've been like forced to read his book. <laughs> well, I would be like the worst drag queen addition to your cast, but, but tell me in. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> So I don't know. If anyone out there listening is a reality television producer and wants to uh, capitalize on those ideas, they are available. I think the MFA one would be really fun. I, mean, I have a workshop in the spring. We should try it. I think it could be a gas. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I feel like, and I feel like especially with uh, with the web, I mean, why, why not just put it up? I could put it up on the Nervous Breakdown, like every Monday totally. or something, you know? So who knows? But I think that kind of stuff uh, is a possibility. And if it gets people reading and it makes people talk about books then you know to my mind it's it's all for the better yeah yeah well the other cool thing about a series like that too is i think it's like again just the, the the reputation of the literary book is that it's just like flogging you know intellectually heavy tome um and like god forbid it could actually be this like life really fun experience um, and whatever we can do to kind of like deconstruct that idea, I think is is really important to attract the next generation of readers. Well, and you know, here's another question, you know, because people talk about how the audience for literary fiction is dwindling. Other people argue that it's not, that it's actually growing. I mean, you hear different things and it gets confusing for me. But one of the thoughts that crosses my mind is that if it's hard for, you know, writers of literary fiction to find an enthusiastic readership, does it ever occur to you that, like, you know, maybe we're not uh, writing stories that uh, relate to people? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe the onus is on the authors and, and not the readers? Because I think a lot of times authors, you know, it can be easy to, like, blame the, the lack of readers on readers or on people in general. Well, yeah, they're going to, authors are going to constantly blame things that aren't their own artwork, right? You know, whether it's the marketplace or their agent or <laughs> readership. I mean, we're constantly trying to deflect away from what the actual culprit probably is, which is maybe my book's not that good. Right. 
awesome. Or, you know, I mean, who wants to really have to, like, confront that question? You know, when I, when I have students who, like, are looking down their nose at, at genre writers, and I always come back to this idea of, of readability uh, and pacing and, like, you know, when did plot become a dirty word? Like, I think there's a lot that a literary writer can learn from the genre writer just in terms of, like, how to put an experience together or a world together that a reader wants to spend time in. Well, and vice versa, too. I think genre writers read literary fiction and can learn a lot about, like, character, for instance, you know, and how to... Absolutely. So I think they feed each other. But, you know, it's interesting because uh, I've had this conversation, mul you know, multiple times with different people. And the question is posed, like, you know, if, if you're a writer of literary ambition and real literary talent and you're looking down your nose at genre or you're sort of scoffing at the whole, like, Twilight series, just to, like, you know, use a prominent example... Uh, the question that that's sort of interesting to ask is like, okay, could you do it? Could you write a yeah. could you write a series of paranormal teen romance books involving vampires and like have it be a smash yeah. hit? You know, like, totally. Could it be? You know, I, it's a it's an interesting question because like, you know, I, I I would probably agree. I haven't read the books, but I, I bet if I cracked them, I, I wouldn't be like hugely impressed with the writing. But I don't, you know, it's to each their own. I, I'm also sort of like, uh, you know, if people want to read it and, you know, teenagers are into it, fine, you know. Yeah. If it's entertaining. I, you know, I, I think one of the complaints, too, the like, you know, indie writers are always have, too, is, you know, that, like, I'm not finding an audience and I'm not finding an audience. And they, and they find that to be this, like, uh, impediment to their creative lives. Uh, or, like, what's the point? Why should I keep, why should I keep doing this if no one cares? Uh, and but I come at it from the exact opposite point of view. Like I see an incredible amount of freedom in the fact that, like you know, I might be doing what I'm doing for you know five thousand readers or six thousand readers or whatever. Because um, I just I see that as like license to go as absolutely crazy on the page as I want to go. Yeah. Like if I was thinking about hedging a bet, or if I was thinking about coddling or pandering to some idea of of audience, I mean. I look at those numbers and say to myself, all right, well, well, let's go nuts. Let's go nuts and see what happens. And I think about artists like the Flaming Lips or, or Tom Waits, where it's just like, you know, go out on the periphery and get really, really fucking good at what you do. And maybe the audience will come and maybe the audience won't, but at the end of the day, at least you'll be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, like, I made the exact art I wanted to make without ever cutting a corner. And, and, and you know, God knows it'll be more fun. The making of it will be oh. more fun that way anyway, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm curious to know, like, a little bit more about you, like, personally, like, where you come from, how you came to be a writer. Like, like you, did you grow up in Arizona? Is that correct? I went to elementary school in Arizona uh, and then moved up to the Bay Area to do junior high and high school. Uh, I ended up in San Francisco when I was 17 and just, just haven't left. I, I love this town. In fact, the book I just finished, or it comes out next week, is, is sort of like this love letter to the Mission District, where I was constantly reminding myself that, that, that I wasn't just using the mission as, as setting, uh, but I, that I wanted it to be as much of a vibrant player as, as the actual kind of living, breathing creatures. So that was kind of one of the tasks I set for myself was, in the sheltering sky, the de Paul Bowles' desert is an actual character. Like, yeah. is it possible for you to do that with this urban milieu? Uh, and I just had a blast trying to put all that stuff together. It was really fun. Well, for listeners who might not be familiar, you know, intimately with San Francisco, like, tell tell us a little bit about the mission. 
the way the mission has been kind of like an artist's neighborhood, you know, throughout the throughout the nineties. Uh, I got here in like the mid nineties. Uh, and is kind of slowly, you know, from a post nine eleven perspective, kind of going through this crazy gentrification. Um, I mean, I guess it's always kind of been going through different iterations of of gentrification, but the latest one has been like you know more more strollers, more white collar lofts rather than you know artist workspace. Um, so it's changing again, but it's kind of it's kind of in this sort of flux that's kind of fun to to be a part of. You know, you can like dig your heels in and like lament the fact that things are changing, but, but they're changing anyways. Um, I think it's more interesting to just kind of look at all the, the cool stuff that's there. I mean, I, I couldn't walk down the street without running into a painter, um, you know, or a poet or a web designer or all sorts of people that are, are doing their art, whether they're doing their art creatively or, or for a paycheck is another issue altogether. Uh, but it's a really fun world to be a, to be in. I was sitting in a cafe yesterday on you know, this guy next to me. Like, I peeked at his laptop and he was like working on this like short story, you know, and it was just like, oh, I love this town. I love that everybody around me is like trying to express themselves in, in some way creatively. No, and I'm certainly not saying that it's, it's unique here, but it's, this is the only setting that I've lived in as an adult. Uh, and so I know it so intimately. Well, no, but I, th- I think it's, you know, I've lived in uh, multiple places and there are certainly uh, places that are more receptive than others to creative pursuits. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, it obviously people have their issues with it and uh, people have issues with every place. But I've always right. found that like in Los Angeles, one of the things I love about it is that you can kind of you can kind of be anything and no one will, yeah. no one will really bat an eye. And uh, I've lived in other cities where it's like, yeah, I'm a writer. And then it's like, okay, well, what do you do? <laughs> right. You know, yeah, totally. You, you get that whole thing. And I think San Francisco is uh, accepting and, uh, you know, permissive of those kinds of pursuits as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just lucky to be able to work in that kind of environment because uh, otherwise you've got even more resistance than you, you already otherwise would have. Yeah, I have a, a buddy, a writer buddy of mine who always says, like, you know, you can be in your late 30s living in your car as a poet in San Francisco, and women will still have sex with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't say that about too many places. I don't think, I don't think L.A., I mean, maybe L.A., certain neighborhoods you could pull that off. But I think San Francisco, San Francisco is great that way, though, you know. Absolutely. It's kind of a, this, this den of slack, you know, which can, like, lead you to blink one day and wake up and you're 50 on the same bar stool you were when you were 30 <laughs> having the exact same conversation. But if you're able to kind of tunnel that, that drive, it can be a really great place to be creative. Well, so now tell me about research. I mean, obviously you live there and you're sort of immersed in it day in and day out, but, um, you know, with Damascus, uh, you know, Damascus is a bar and I'm curious to know like how much field research you did. Uh, to prepare and to build the characters in the story and whatnot? I bartended for all throughout my undergrad and my grad school days. Um, so I'm like super steeped from kind of the bartender side of the equation. So that's a world that I feel really comfortable uh, talking about. Um, and I'm also a recovering alcoholic and addict. So I feel really comfortable talking from that side of the equation too. How long have you been um, sober? Three years. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. It's definitely been a a whole new world. I mean, so much so much more color in my day-to-day life. It's been great. 
So uh, it's just it was booze, basically, or booze and other stuff. Booze and and, and other other stuff too. Yeah. But the um, what's been fun about the work, I mean, especially in Damascus, because I, I wrote the rough drafts when I was still loaded, but I but I revised the book sober, and it was crazy to watch this kind of thread of optimism that really isn't a part of either of my first two books kind of start to entrench itself in in the soul of the story. Huh. Um, I think it's really interesting. Like if you read like you know early Carver to late Carver, like his last book, Cathedral, was the only one that he wrote when he was sober. Um, and I think you see an, an optimism in, in, the, in the prose that is just certainly not there in, in the earlier stuff. That's it's cool to see how the, the writer's own life can really feed the identity of the work like that. Well, I'm just impressed. I mean, if you, know, if you were still uh, like loaded, as you say, and you were working on fiction, like I'm impressed that you were able to get books done, period. Like, how did you work when that was the case? You know, would you, uh, would, would you always work sober or were you working while you were under the influence? My first novel, um, some things that meant the world to me, I, I, I wrote in a complete blackout. Wow. Um, I would reread stuff the next day and, it was an and o- have no idea it was that an- I had even written any of that. And it was an Oprah's like book pick, right? I mean, Oprah's yeah. O Magazine loved it. <laughs> yeah, that was like the craziest news I've ever gotten in my whole life. Like I thought, I thought my agent was fucking with me a little bit when she gave me that phone call. Uh, because up until that point, the book had been out for like you know six months and had probably sold forty copies to my mom. Yeah, you know, and, and then we get this phone call that it's going to make Oprah's ten best of the year. I just I just didn't believe it. I thought I was getting my chain yanked. Yeah, it was crazy. That's crazy. So you did. I mean, you barely even remember writing it, essentially. Yeah, you know that there's that old story about like the the the, the shoemaker who like had so many orders that like he would you know so and so and so and then he would like pass out and these like fairies would come in and and finish everything for him so he'd wake up and just be astounded that the workload got com- completed and i used to joke that like that's what whiskey and cocaine was like for me and, like <laughs> i would crash out and then they would kind of finish finish writing the stuff on on my behalf and you'd be like, holy For shit, sure. holy shit, this stuff is good. You know? <laughs> some days, yeah, some days I was pleasantly surprised, and other days I was, I was glad that I was the only person rereading it. But, I mean, I, don't, I haven't found that to be really that much different from a sober perspective either. You know, there are certain days where you reread it, and it's just atrocious. And yeah. some days you see stuff that you can, you can salvage and try to do something with at a later date. Well, you know, it's always a fascination, like writers who can work under the influence, because I don't think very many can work well. And like, what I think what I've come to, because I, I have to be like, you know, slightly caffeinated or, or maybe majorly caffeinated in order to work, but that's the extent of it. And uh, yeah. I, I think that, like, you know, uh, I've come to the conclusion that you can maybe write one or two books, good books, or you can make one or two good works of art under the influence, but. Most people, it starts to tail off after that. You know what I'm saying? It's like uh, it's d- diminishing returns. Eventually, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, you just see like the the catalog too. Like, look at a guy like Hunter Thompson. You know, who was like so sharp and doing such interesting things around, especially like Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, just one of my favorite books ever. Yeah. Um, and then look at what he was doing in the '90s, and it was a fucking parody of himself. I mean, it's it's tragic. Yeah, no, and you know, I'm I'm glad to hear you mention him because like I'm a huge fan of his. Like I just he makes me he makes me laugh out loud while reading. Oh yeah, which is uh, 
you know, that's rare. I rarely like laugh out loud, but he's just one of my heroes. I love, uh, you know, I love literary writers with a, a, a strong, uh, funny streak. And he was, sure. you know, especially darkly funny. And he was as good as it gets at his best. And I just read, uh, you know, an oral biography of him, uh, you know, over the summer, not too long ago. And it just, it was mind blowing. Like, you know, a, it was just like really entertaining to read about his life on a certain level. Cause it was so crazy, but it was also heartbreaking because, you know, the truth of it was that it was just, uh, you know, the last 30 years uh, or not 30, but the last 25 years were, uh, a mess <laughs> largely yeah. and creatively they were, they were very, uh, they could have been a lot better, I think, you know, but that's just, well, yeah, I'm not sure that I think that there's a bigger tragedy than that an artist or maybe anybody can go through, but when they actually become a parody of, of who they used to be or, or who they want to be. Um, but usually at that point in an addiction, like, you know, we're, we're not driving anymore. Um, you know, I've got a buddy who always says, like, you know, for a long time, like, booze actually really helped me. Like, I, I, I wasn't ready to think about some really painful, really atrocious things that I experienced, and, and it did help. And then when it wasn't helping anymore, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't calling the shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it definitely. And um, I think that, the, you know, it's just a trap that... Uh, a lot of people fall into. And I think, cause I think about this a lot, you know, when it comes to drugs and alcohol, it, I think it's easy to have, uh, like a really ideological stance on it on either side where it's like drugs sure. are all bad or drugs are great, you know, and like they, they open your mind, <laughs> whatever it is, like you hear both sides of it. And I think I've had both of those thoughts in my life, depending on where I was in my life. But at the end of the day, it's a gray area. You know, like, the, I mean, I think that your friend who said that, you know, for a while alcohol really helped me, uh, I think there's probably some truth in that. I mean, I think it probably Definitely. did genuinely help him uh, and, you know, cause some cause some good things to happen. And it's like the old Bill Hicks line where he says, uh, you know, if you think drugs are, are all bad, you know, go take a look at your record collection. You know, your record, totally. your record collection wouldn't exist, basically. And... So it just gets difficult terrain and, you know, it's obviously, it's dangerous too, you know, when you go down that road, because like you say, when it gets to the time where you want to jump off the train, you're no longer at the wheel, you know? Right. So hey, you mentioned the, uh, the Hunter Thompson biography. I, I just finished the, the Raymond Carver biography in the springtime. And I remember putting the book down once, um, in kind of a frustrated way and thinking to myself, like, I would have rather this guy was a worse writer and, and a better father. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I don't care, like, about his, like, hard-drinking, tell-it-like-it-is attitude. Like, I, I would much rather that I'd never heard of Ray Carver and he did what he was supposed to do to, to provide for his kids. Well, that's right. And, um, you know, and that's the thing, too, is that it's easy to romanticize when your only understanding of the artist is the, you know, is the work and maybe some sort, yeah. of, some sort of, like, surface-level glitz or whatever it is but then when you actually start to dig into their lives and you see the the human fallout of addiction and how it affects like their wife or their child or whatever and you know then it becomes uh not quite so sexy <laughs> yeah no that's that's an understatement i forget the name of the of the documentary but there's something there was a bukowski documentary i don't know a few years back it's called, and at one point called, he gets it's called born into this Morning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know that scene where, where he gets loaded and, and is kicking his wife on that couch? Yeah. While the filmmaker is sitting there? Yes. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's just despicable. Yeah. And then like, how do you, how do you marry this idea of like this poet? I mean, I'm a much bigger fan of his poetry than I am of his prose. Um, and how do you marry this, this relationship you have with this person's art with, with this thing that they're doing on, on the couch, on the television? It's, it's, it's surreal stuff to ponder for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then, you know, I, I, because I, I I thought about that a lot after I watched that movie, and it's like, and you think about Bukowski. I think the whole like Rosetta Stone or the whole way to understand all that stuff is is Ham on Rye. You know, you read about his childhood, and that was it. I mean, you know, like Definitely. he came up in an abusive house, and you know, he was medicating for sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. So I'm curious, uh, you know, how did you finally wind up uh, getting sober? Like, how did you jump off the train? <laughs> uh, you know, I was yeah, I would love to say that it was like this kind of magnanimous move on my part. Um, but my health started to fail. Um, I was kind of having some problems in my body that led me to go to the doctor. And he kind of gave me the, the come to Jesus talk, which was, you know, basically like, I don't know how you did this so fast, but, you know, this is end stage alcoholism. Um, you know, you do, you do what you want to do, but I want you to have all the information. Um, it was a pretty simple decision from that point. I mean, maybe from a subconscious level, I was already looking for a way to transition away because I wasn't having fun anymore. Yeah. Um, I hadn't been having fun for a long time. I just didn't know it. So, um, so, then so you... this, was, this was a good conduit for me to get into a rehabilitation program and go away and figure some things out. Okay, so that's what you did. You didn't just like go cold turkey. Like You, you got help and went through a program and stuff. <clears throat> no, I definitely needed to... Uh, go away and have some help with that. And again, like we were talking about people that have kids and write, like anybody who's able to, to kick drugs on their own. I mean, I just tip my hat to them. I think that's such an amazing show of willfulness. I, I needed to have my hand held a little bit. Well, but I mean, I think too, though, is that sometimes people can just go cold turkey, but they never really get like the emotional rehab that I think needs to go along with it, you know, or at least, I don't know. I don't want to speak too authoritatively about it, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's one thing to just quit taking the the drugs or drinking the booze, but it's another thing to get, you know, kind of get some insight and that's hard to get on your own, especially when you're coming out of years of abuse or whatever. Yeah. Well, especially too, like you want to have the tools to know like what to do, like when shit in your life gets fucked up again. Because invariably, like, things are going to go wrong. That's the nature of our existences. Right. Um, and you want to have this skill set that doesn't just send you, like, you know, running to the bar or, or whatever your particular poison happens to be. Um, so from that standpoint, I think it's I think it's really helpful. Definitely. Well, yeah. Well, no, and it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, I think chemical abuse is like a, it's obviously a pitfall in this profession, you know, maybe more so. It sure seems to be, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that it's interesting, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that the work, you know, that you're noticing certain changes in the work and it'll be interesting to kind of track, uh, with like future books, how, you know, how it evolves out of that. And I don't know. It's just... Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because I've spent probably the last year or so writing this fairy tale, um, that I, that I think will be my next book. Um, and it all kind of started from watching the big Lebowski. And, you know, I've written three, like, really lean, really macabre books. And I was watching The Big Lebowski thinking to myself, you know, the Collins must have had so much fun putting this together. And, like, while I might have enjoyed my 
my artistic process, like it's never been fun for me because what I'm writing about is always is, is really heavy, is really lugubrious. Um, so I've just been kind of writing this really light, fun romp as it is. Uh, and it, it, it's been a whole different world. I, I can't tell you. It's, it's, it's literally been a night and day process. Wow. Well, I think the Big Lebowski is a good place to start, you know? I mean, if you're using it as a starting point, it's, it's a nice foundation, right? Well, especially because if you contrast that with them having made Blood Simple, which is, I think, where the idea first came from, which was, well, they've already done something like that's paced really slowly and is really heavy and is really morbid. And they are able to flex these other muscles, too. Um, you know, I think I need to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. I think most great art comes from artists probably recognizing habits or ticks and, and blowing those things up, making themselves as uncomfortable as they can possibly be and, and seeing how you adapt to that. Well, and the, yeah, and they're also subverting genre, like, really brilliantly. You know, it's like a, it's like a uh, Raymond, Raymond Chandler, like, crime story with a stoner as the lead. Detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like they're they're those guys are geniuses. Um, and what we were talking about earlier too, with that collision between you know high art and and low art, you know, just this idea of like why can't something be smart and fun at the same time? Like whoever decided that those things needed to be mutually exclusive. I think the Cullens are a great example of artists who can accomplish both of those things at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, even in their darker films, uh, you know, there are still like these sort of laugh out loud moments or, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that happens. I mean, like you Fargo, you know, is really funny in its own way, but it's also like super, super dark, you know? Yeah. And it shows Miller's crossing I yeah. mean, that movie's hilarious. But yeah. then you think about what they have you laughing at and, and you don't even know how they took you to that place. It's, it's quite brilliant. Yeah, well, I love that stuff. So, uh, do you have a title for this fairy tale, or is it all kind of under wraps? Are you superstitious? I don't know. I'm not superstitious. I think I'm going to call it uh, "Find Your Fight Song." Okay. Um, although, you know, under the name of full disclosure, like I've never titled a book that I've actually wanted to title it, not one time. <laughs> So I'm probably not the best person to talk to about what goes into making a successful title. So wait, you mean like your editors at uh, at two dollar will will chime in? Is that right? Or well, like my first, my I wanted to call my first book "Love Yourself, Rhonda," um, <laughs> and everybody I think was like, people will think that's funny on a second read, but nobody would get it if they just saw it in the book in the bookstore. Um, I wanted to call the second book. From a fragile galaxy, and everybody was like, yeah, "They're going to think it, people will think it's sci-fi." And don't think you want you want to put that on a cover. Um, and then with the third book, I wanted to, for a long time I wanted to call it "Machines That Ache in Their C Drives," and people were just kind of universally, "That's fucking stupid." So think of something <laughs> better. <laughs> well, like you know, you have to be commended for taking taking advice. You know, sometimes writers get obstinate with that, but I think like you know, if people who mean something to you and whose opinions you respect are giving you advice, then you know you deserve credit for taking it. You know. You know what's weird though? I don't, I don't know if this is true in your writing too, but titles don't feel that precious to me. Like I'll I'll definitely go to the mat for stuff that's between the covers, but in terms of like how it's going to be known out in the world, like. I don't know. That that's not as precious to me. I don't really care that much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think so. I think that 
you know, it's hard to nail down. Like I just read, there was just this article in some magazine and I, I can't remember where it was, but it was about naming and it was about like branding and how those things work. And it was sort of fascinating. It's not necessarily exactly in the wheelhouse of, of books and literature, but, um, it's just sort of like what's in a name and how people, right. how people respond to it. And it's hard to sort of pin down. Like if you're thinking of really, you know, books that have done really, really well, I think there are a lot of, you know, titles on those books that wouldn't, you know, jump out at you and, and you would think, wow, that's, that's a great title. That's going to sell some books. But, um, I think there is something in it, right. And maybe, you know, if you, if you want people to read it, then you have to give some thought to it and think about how people will respond. I mean, I, I guess I sort of understand oh, yeah. on that level, but I mean, if you look at a book like, you know, like say Nick Flynn's memoir, like another bullshit night in Flex city. I mean, that's a showstopper. Like, you, you hear that title and you think to yourself, I, mean, I have to know what's going on in that book. Like, that's crazy. Right, right. Uh, but then I think about a book like, you know, one of my favorite novels is by E.O. Doctorow. Uh, it's just, just called The Book of Daniel, um, which is, you know, obviously besides the biblical parallel, is like a relatively innocuous handle. You wouldn't see that and think to yourself, genius Doctorow, I have to pick that up and know what's going on right now. Yeah, um, yeah. But once you get inside the book, like it's crazy and out of hand and so much fun to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's any way to sort of like sum it all up. You know, it's just it, titles can be anything. And, you know, when you speak about, uh, you know, what you're, what, what's precious to you is between the covers and, and so on and so forth. It makes me want to ask about, uh, you know, your feelings on, uh, books as objects. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I, I could ask this to any author. I've, I've tried to kind of keep myself from doing it because I, I think the whole ebook versus print argument has just gotten so much play. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, like what the contents of the book are the thing and how, how I read it isn't, is secondary, you know? And so yeah. I might, if I had to prefer, if I had to pick, I would prefer a print book. Um, uh, if I had the choice, two of them sitting in front of me, I'd probably pick up the print book, but if all I have is my phone and I'm stuck in a waiting room at like the dentist's office, I can read a book and if it's good and if the contents are good, I can enjoy it that way. Is that weird? Yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I think that my goal as a, as a writer would be to say, I want my book to be available in whatever format somebody wants to experience it. You know, if they wanted to like, you know, a book on tape, I want a book on tape. I want there to be, I don't want technology to hold back or hinder somebody from getting to experience my, my artwork. You know, then the flip side of that is as a reader. I mean, I don't, I don't have a Kindle. Um, I don't have an iPhone. Um, not that I'm opposed to either of those things. They're just not a part of my, my adult. I mean, I love crappy paperbacks. Um, you know, there's a great used store right here on Valencia called Dog-Eared Books, and you know, I'll go in there and scour for stuff. I love the smell of books. I love the the experience of being in a bookstore, too, where you could say, you know, I really did Gordon Wish, or I love Amy Hempel. You know, who else can you turn me on to? Yeah. Um, and again, like participating in that, that dialogue, they're, they're saying that like the brick-and-mortar stores, especially the mom-pop ones, are going to go through some sort of renaissance here. I know that um, I, was, I was just going to say that. And I think that it's like, it's like you become your neighborhood curator. I think that's what's going to totally. happen. You know, these, these stores will open and it's not just about like having your finger on the pulse of like publishing. It's about having your finger on the pulse of the neighborhood that your store is in and the kind of, and the clientele that you have. 
and curating for them essentially because yeah. there's so much content out there and I can totally see how stores like that like melded with like a coffee shop or whatever it is you know could totally take off because I think communities love having that you know I, I know I do I mean having that in a neighborhood is, is sort of vital to me my sister I have a sister who's uh, 19 um, and she was telling me the other day that like she doesn't read book reviews um, because she doesn't care what other some other person's opinion about a piece of art would be. But she just like she's got certain websites that she hits because she respects the people that run them, um, and she just like sees what they're interested in and will kind of take it from there. So I think that idea of curating uh, culture is a really interesting idea. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if some of that's generational. I mean, I, I still I still read book reviews. But my sister, who's you know obviously a lot younger than me, says like, no way, I'm not interested in that at all. I don't want somebody telling me, you know, what's quote unquote good and what's quote unquote bad. I just want to find out about interesting projects and, and make my own determinations from there. Yeah, well, I hope that's the way that it goes. You know, I think that that would be sort of like a a, ver a very cool victory. You know, on the back end of so much flux and change or whatever, if like, you know, the bricks and mortar uh, indie store you know, took off again or, you know, wound up having this renaissance because, uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's needed. I think that, you know, obviously I, I buy books online just like anybody, but I think, like you say, the experience of going in and, uh, and being in the bookstore and having somebody kind of show you stuff. And I don't know, that's, it would be a shame if that didn't happen anymore. Yeah, the, the one thing about books that I've noticed about myself over the last couple of years is I've stopped buying hardcovers. Yeah, oh, God, I, um, yeah, I, it, almost, I almost never do. It's really weird, though, because I would think that, like, if it's a writer I like, then I want to immediately support them. Uh, and it doesn't mean that I don't like them. It just means I don't want to spend $35. Like, I, I think that's too much. I mean, I, I, as a writer, I'm probably not supposed to say that. Uh, but it makes me really happy that my, you know, I publish with a small enough house and they just do paperback originals because I feel comfortable looking somebody in the eyes and saying, you know, here's this book I wrote, it's, it's $15. Whereas if I was saying 35 or 40 I think I'd have kind of, you know, a furtive expression on my face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think like, yeah, I, I, I agree, especially when it comes to literary fiction and the and knowing the audience. I mean, if you've written like a definitive biography of Franklin Roosevelt and you spent like 15 years researching, you know, I, I get it. And you, then you buy it in totally. hardcover and it's 35 bucks. But, um, you know, if it's every two or three years and you're putting out a new, um, you know, 250 or 300 page novel, like to me, 15 bucks uh, seems like a square deal, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like almost basically a movie ticket at, at this at this point. Yep. Um, but that seems like an okay transaction. But you know, thirty thirty five seems a little a little steep, at least for for my dirty little books. You know. Well, I'm curious. You know, uh, before I let you go, to know a little bit more about how you got to be a writer. Like, did, was this something you always wanted to do? Was it something you came to later in life? Like, uh, how did it happen for you? I came to. Forget reading for writing for a second, but I came to actually reading very late in life. Um, I was one of those kids who, like, you know, read the first couple pages of Jane Austen or Edith Wharton, or um, you know, read Badge of Courage or whatever. It was just like, you know, this reading thing is for the fucking birds. Like, <laughs> I refuse um, and just dodged, and I faked my way through every book report I ever wrote, um, all the way through my senior year in high school until. Uh, this guy figured out what I was doing. Um, an English teacher 
and said to me, you know, here's handing me a copy of Slaughterhouse Five, and said, this is your makeup assignment. You have a weekend to finish it, or I'm going to flunk you. It's always Vonnegut. Um, it's always Vonnegut, man. It's unbelievable. It's, for our generation. It's so perfect, though. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was the same for me. I mean, I remember reading Cat's Cradle uh, in seventh grade. Like, it was for a class. But it was like, you know, he was... And I was in junior high in Indianapolis, and he was an Indiana guy, so... Um, oh, wow. But yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, for some reason... I'm just so fascinated by how much resonance his work has with, like, young men in particular, you know? It's, yeah, it was, you know, it was really cool, too, because, I mean... It took me so much later in life to like see the beauty in what you know Twain or Wharton or Austin are doing, but the idea of handing that to like a fourteen-year-old boy and expecting him to like fall in love with books is, I think, a pretty asinine concept. Um, and I'm not saying those books don't have their place because I think they do, um, but why that that's so a, a part of the like high school, junior high school canon doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If one of our goals is to like make literature seem exciting to kids. Well, yeah. And I think like something about the accessibility of the prose and, uh, you know, especially with older, older books, like it can be hard for me even now, you know, to, to crank through them just because, uh, the voice, you know, is just, it's not as relatable, you know, and it's, and the prose style from 19th century literature is obviously, uh, a lot more, um, What's ornate? I don't know how to put it, but you know what I'm saying. Like it's not as oh, no, exactly what you mean. it's it's not as easy for I can imagine uh, students to connect. And you know, I think to my teaching uh, experiences and one of the books that I always had a lot of success with, and and this is even teaching like you know comp students or uh, you know not creative writing classes, but just like freshmen, college freshmen, uh, I would hand them uh, Ask the Dust. Which I, f- I found that one to be really user friendly. A because it was short and it didn't intimidate them too much, and B because the prose style is really clean and simple, and the voice is strong, and there's a lot of emotion in the writing, and they almost Absolutely. they almost always love it. You know, it's a great book. You know, I mean, Vonnegut for me was like was so mind blowing to me about that was just the idea that like anything was possible. Like here we're dealing with like time travel and porn stars in space. Um, you know, and I immediately went back to that teacher and said, you know, give me a list. I want a reading list. Um, and, you know, we went through Kesey and Heller and Orwell, Huxley and all those guys. And, and, and I was hooked. And I don't think I ever, I didn't write a word until I got out of my undergrad. Um, I was about 22 and took a job in an advertising agency. Uh, I was a production assistant and didn't really have any responsibilities except maybe like 30 hours, 30 minutes worth of work a day. I just had to sit there. And um, so I just started writing a story. And, you know, because the internet was right there and everything, I finished writing it and I thought it was good. And I clicked on some literary mags. Um, I found one that sounded like low budget enough that maybe I would have a chance. And like, I went to, I remember I went to Costa Rica and I, I came back a few weeks later and had a voicemail from this woman being like, I love your story. I want to publish it. Um, you know, and it came to me and it was this weird little staple rag. Um, but it was exactly what I needed. Just somebody saying like, keep going, kid. It's, you, you can get good at this someday. You're certainly not good at it yet, but, but keep going. Right. And, it, and, then and like- from that point, I just kept on, you know, kept on writing stories and kept on writing stories and my love of it certainly grew from there. 
So what what kind of kid were you? Like, were you uh, like an athlete uh, growing up? I mean, like when you say you weren't reading much, like how did you spend your time? Or were you sort of, uh, I mean, what, what were you like? I, I, I liked sports more through like junior high school. Um, and then it was pretty much, I, I started to play rock guitar, um, playing bands. And so that kind of like took the emphasis away from athletics. Um, and at that point, I just wanted to like take LSD and, and play music all day long, <laughs> which was, you know, which was what I did. And I think actually that those experiences in, in bands um, really feed my my creative life now. Um, for the idea of just being like, you know, you're in the garage is, is a very useful metaphor for a literary writer. You know, you're doing this like because you love it. It has to be a labor of love. Um, it's just you and your weird music or you and your weird books. Um, and have fun with it. Have a, have a good time with it. I, I, those lessons, even though I didn't know they were lessons at the time, you know, I thought I was just breathing through my mouth with like Snickers bar stuck in my braces. But actually, all that stuff has been really useful for sure. Well, are there uh, are there any other artists in your family? Like you come from a line of, of artistic folks or are you sort of like the family anomaly? My mom was a, was a piano player, um, and my, my father was actually a minister. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, a Lutheran minister. So that was a whole different side of that experience. But I didn't really grow up spending a lot of time around him. I, I grew up spending more time around my mom. But there was always music in the house, which was great. And she was always you know, playing the piano. And when she wasn't playing the piano, she was listening to... Some either some to jazz, but mostly a lot of classical music. Neither of those types of music really resonate with me. I'm much more of like a punk rock, indie rock kid. Um, but I all I've kind of kept on that tradition of always having music in my home. It's a good thing. And do you still play? I have I, I have a beautiful 1971 you know Fender Stratocaster that's just gorgeous. Um, but I haven't played in an actual band in, in a few years. Everybody started having kids, and <laughs> you know we're getting like fatter and balder, and it's like not as sexy as it used to be. Yeah, um, you know, and I've, I've had that thought actually, like with bands. Like I remember being in, in college, or when you're young and you're in your early twenties, and there are these bands, and you know you're you're a huge fan of them, and you go to the shows, and like at that point the band is like, they, you know, these guys are like 35, which is like kind of where, right. where I'm at now. And I think back to like you know what my perception of it was when I was in the audience and like what mu they must have been thinking like looking at you know looking out at all these like wasted nineteen twenty year olds you know like, totally. that's got to be sort of a, an odd one especially if you're in a band that like really goes the distance and you know you keep playing into your forties and fifties and the crowds sort of stay young you know that's got to be an interesting yeah. thing to deal with. I think a musician, too, uh, learns a lesson very early on in life about how you're never going to make everybody happy with the kind of music that you choose to um, write and, and perform. Sometimes I think novelists have like an unrealistic expectation of what their readership should be. Um, so I'm really thankful to be able to draw on those experiences and say, oh, yeah, I don't wonder why, you know, 50 five-year-old grandmother doesn't want to listen to my like crappy punk rock like i wouldn't want to listen to it if i was her either and you don't want to listen to, do. you don't want to listen to lawrence welk or whatever you know yeah totally but then i'll have friends who like write some sort of like 
weird acerbic book, and then they're like, well, I don't understand why I'm not selling as many books as, you know, Karen Muscle's Swamplandia, which I think, you know, Karen's really good at what she does, but I mean, it is what that is. It's a very palatable story, and if you're writing things that aren't that palatable, can you really be that confused about why you're not competing with those numbers? I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It's just basically like, you know, having a realistic... Uh, understanding of your own work and of the reading public. And, you know, I totally get it. I think the music, I think, you know, tying it to music makes it easier to understand for some reason. Yeah. I, you know, painting too. Like I tattooed this saying of Picasso's on my arm, which is just, you know, the, the chief enemy of creativity is good taste. Like once you think you've learned something about, you know, what's quote unquote good, like, I hope that you immediately try to subvert that or you immediately try to challenge that or you do something to make sure that you're never getting fixed in what your notions of uh, high art are. Yeah. Um, for, for me, anyways, that's like part of the important side of what we do is staying limber, being open to new ideas, trying, like I said about this fairy tale, I've never felt so vulnerable artistically. Like those first three books are almost fatalistic in a worldview, which is actually a pretty safe place to be. Um, because from one standpoint, I'm basically saying to the, to the reader, you know, like, I'm really unhappy. I'm so unhappy. You think you're sad? Well, watch this. I'm going to show, I'm going to show you that. <laughs> yeah. Right. But with this, but with this fairy tale, I mean, it, it, it's light. I mean, it's supposed to be funny. Um, I feel so exposed and so vulnerable for people to be like, Oh my God! What happened to this guy's edge? He's turned into this whole pussy. You know, fill in the fill in the blank with whatever epithet you want. Um, but I would have expected it to be the opposite. I wouldn't have thought this was going to feel so vulnerable. But it, it's um, it's it's pretty crazy. Well, I think it's you know, I think it's the recipe for a long career when you keep challenging yourself and you keep trying new things and you stay open, like you say. And uh, I certainly uh, have enjoyed. Uh, hearing all about it and I wish you the best of luck with Damascus and uh, you know when you come through Los Angeles on on book tour uh, you know I'll do my best to be there yeah if you can't make the reading let's at least go out and uh, grab a drink or something that sounds good man Uh, great talking with you and uh, you know down the road once this fairy tale comes out we'll have to talk again all the best Brad thanks All right, man take it easy All right, everybody, there you have it. That's Joshua Moore for the hour. Go check him out on the web at joshuamore.net. Moore is spelled M-O-H-R. And you can find him on Twitter. His handle is at Joshua underscore Moore. Uh, I think he's on the Facebook as well. He's got several books out, uh, three different novels. One is called Some Things That Meant the World to Me. There's another one called Termite Parade. And then the brand new one, Damascus. Go get them. And be sure to check out uh, the publisher, $2 Radio. They are at $2RRadio.com. If you want to check this show out on the web, otherpeoplepod.com. The Twitter feed is at otherpeoplepod. You can follow me at Brad Listy. Uh, What else? The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, uh, it's letters at otherpeoplepod.com. One last little anecdote I want to tell you about Steve Jobs that I forgot to mention at the top. Uh, the, the whole think different ad campaign, uh, in the Malcolm Gladwell piece, there was a, uh, a part about this and how the, the advertising team at Shiat day that was assigned to the Apple account, everybody's working on this, uh, this new ad campaign 
And it was Steve Jobs who agonized, agonized over the wording of this advertising campaign. And it was he who decided that it should be think different, which, you know, on a technical level uh, could potentially be grammatically incorrect. If different is supposed to be an adverb modifying the verb think, then it should be think differently. But Jobs insisted on, on it being think different. He wanted different to be like a noun, like think victory, think different, which I think was the right call. And as a writer, uh, I can I can respect that. I can respect that uh, particular, you know, uh, choice to go with, you know, different as a noun to use the, the more colloquial uh, colloquial usage, colloquial. So anyway, think different, tweaking, being a tweaker. Uh, I think we're all probably tweakers if we're writers to some extent. Do you have to be a monumental tweaker in order to be a great writer? I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of tweaking about that right now. Uh, so have a good day. Thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, don't don't over-tweak. Okay? <laughs>